Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. Nobody likes paying taxes. Mark Twain once famously said that the only difference between a tax collector and a taxidermist is that the taxidermist leaves the skin. But the notion that government needs to collect enough taxes to finance its operation was widely, albeit grudgingly, accepted across society for many years in this country. That began to change in the late 1970s as an anti-tax movement was born in California. That movement has come to dominate Republican and occasionally Democratic policy over the last 50 years, resulting in a massive national debt. The history of the anti-tax movement is laid out in a new book, The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. We're lucky this morning to be joined by the author, Professor Michael Gratz. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's start with a little bit of background. What motivated you to write this book and how long did it take to do the research? Well, I had a conversation with my agent who urged me to do this book. I was skeptical at first. Um, I thought, well, you know, everybody knows about the anti-tax movement. But as I worked on it, I realized that that was false and that the anti-tax movement has been the most important overlooked social and political movement of the last half century. It actually took me about three years to uh, research and write this book. You trace the origins of the movement to Howard Jarvis and California's Proposition 13. Who was Jarvis and how did Proposition 13 come to be enacted? Well, uh, the book is uh, populated with many um, zealous anti-tax advocates, uh, many of whom were real characters, but none was more of a character than Howard Jarvis. Uh, he had worked on Herbert Hoover's uh, campaign briefly uh, when he, Hoover, Hoover ran for president. He uh, started a whole series of newspapers in Utah where he grew up. He boxed a sparring match with Jack Dempsey, the great heavyweight champion. And during World War II, the federal government uh, commission took away some of his, the latex in the plant he was operating. They never used the latex. They took a long time to pay him. And he turned into an anti-government, anti-tax advocate, uh, which, he, which, he, which he remained. Uh, he had been unsuccessful in a number of propositions before Proposition 13. But housing inflation in California had really gone through the roof uh, during uh, the late 70s. Uh, and uh, Proposition 13 passed with 60% of the vote. Uh, Jarvis was an expert at talking about how we, uh, by which he meant uh, well-off people like himself, pay our taxes for them, and the them in California at that time were African-Americans and Latinos. He focused heavily on welfare um, and other benefits for low-income people. Uh, so uh, he was very successful, um, and his timing uh, could not have been better. Can you just explain a little bit to our audience what Prop 13 did and what have been some of the long-term implications of it? Well, Proposition 13, Roger, um, limited property taxes to 1% of value. They rolled back the rolls until 1975 or 1976. And that meant that people who had owned their houses for a long time ended up paying 
much less in property taxes than newcomers to the state of California. Um, there was a major cutback on expenditures. Uh, the public schools took a big hit. California schools at that time were among the best in the nation. Now they're uh, sort of ranked in the 30s or, or even less. Um, there were other services that were dramatically cut, fire, police, and so forth. Uh, local governments who could no longer rely on property taxes decided that they were better off with shopping malls that produced sales taxes than they were with manufacturing industry that produced more property taxes. Um, so it was really a transformative um, measure in California. And recently, uh, the California voters uh, decided not to change it, even though uh, the proposition that they then uh, voted for was limited to commercial property. And there are uh, the same kinds of inequalities for old businesses rather than new startups in the property tax rolls for commercial property as there are for homeowners. Uh, but it has been a, an important and long-lasting firmament in the California system, and it has been imitated across the country by about 30 states. So it has had a long uh, history and, and a long uh, and important impact on both taxation and spending in the state of California. And as you mentioned, it leads to a bizarre pattern, as I understand it, where, you know, the person who lives in House A who bought it last year can be paying many multiples property of, of the property tax of the person who lives in House B who's had it for 30 years. Exactly, yep. exactly, and, and, and they do. <laughs> and, and now you, you mentioned something that I think is an interesting theme that goes throughout the book, which is this underlying notion of, that of us and them, which seems to go throughout the book as we, as we talk about it. One of the ways that I, it, it comes up next is the Christian evangelicals. You talk about how did the Christian evangelicals become part of the political base of the anti-tax movement? Well, this is a really important and, and overlooked uh, story. You know, the, the basic story in America is that Christian evangelicals uh, became an important part of the Republican coalition because of their opposition to abortion. But in the late 70s, they were not, uh, the, the Southern evangelicals were not um, concerned very much with abortion. It was an issue they viewed as a Catholic issue. And what really prompted them uh, to enter uh, the Republican coalition and to become a, a long time an important uh, firmament in the anti-tax movement and the anti-IRS uh, piece of that movement had to do with uh, segregated schools. Uh, the South, after uh, the Supreme Court and Brown v. Board engaged in massive resistance, uh, there were a huge number of private segregation academies for white students that were created uh, mostly in the South, not exclusively in the South. And the lifeblood uh, financially of those institutions were the tax-deductible contributions they got from uh, parents and other residents of, of their area and the tax exemption that they maintained under the tax law, along in some cases with some state grants. And uh, this was not challenged by the IRS until uh, a group of plaintiffs in Holmes County, Mississippi, filed a case called Green v. Connolly. 
And in that case, the court said that in Mississippi, at least, those tax exemptions violated uh, the the Civil Rights Act of of 1964, and they could no longer uh, stand. And that put the IRS uh, in what the former commissioner of the day uh, called a pickle, uh, because uh, they uh, had to deny tax exemptions in Mississippi, but they had been granting them in the rest of the country. And in 1971, uh, 1970, the IRS basically decided, uh, with the approval of Richard Nixon, actually, that uh, they would no longer give tax exemptions to these segregated schools and that uh, contributions to those schools would no longer be deductible. Uh, The IRS, however, uh, all it required was that the school say it was willing to admit um, African-Americans or or Latinos and others, Um, but it didn't really enforce those rules until uh, into the mid-70s. And then in 1978, under Jimmy Carter, the commissioner of Internal Revenue issued a very tough regulation that really required a certain number of uh, minority children to be in the schools. And this created a huge uproar. Uh, And Paul Weyrich, who was a Republican operative and a Christian evangelical, along with Richard uh, Vigory, uh, who was famous for raising money for the Republicans, met with uh, Jerry Falwell, who was a very effective um, minister in North Carolina and uh, Virginia. And Falwell uh, basically agreed at that time to start the moral majority. And it was in opposition to the IRS uh, efforts to desegregate these segregation academies. And that's an important story that has largely been overlooked. And then Ronald Reagan ran for president promising the evangelical community that he would reverse the IRS's position. Uh, to make a long story short, the Supreme Court ultimately stopped him from doing that and denied the tax exemptions for segregated schools. Uh, but after that, uh, the Christian evangelicals have been an important part of the political base of the anti-tax movement and their anti-government, anti-IRS Uh, attitudes have really prevailed, uh, particularly within the Republican Party. Let's continue our conversation with regards to the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Can you talk about some of the key components that were part of his his massive federal tax cut? Well, you know, I think the most important thing he did um, was to reduce the tax rates at the top, particularly on investment income. When Reagan came into office, the top rate on investment income was 70%. So interest and dividends and the like were taxed at 70%. Capital gains were always taxed at a lower rate. Um, And by 1986, that rate had been reduced to 28%. So he reduced it initially to 50%, and then it went down to 28%. Uh, with the help, I should add, of of Bill Bradley and other Democrats who uh, were also anxious uh, for tax reform. The other thing that that happened was that after the big tax cuts 
1981, the benefits to businesses were so great that tax shelters uh, for individuals increased dramatically. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book about the Defense Department actually, I have to use quotes here, renting. They rented ships to a group of tax shelter investors. Of course, the investors couldn't go on the ships because they were top secret. Uh, but they got tax deductions from them. It cost the U.S. government a lot of money uh, to do that rather than to buy the ships. And uh, by the mid-1980s, nearly half of the tax returns of people with more than $200,000 of income had tax shelters that were offsetting their wages or, or other income. And a quarter of the people with income above a million dollars paid 10% or less in taxes. So the creation of, of tax shelters was, I think, the, at least as important as the as the changes in the tax rates that Reagan managed to, to uh, obtain. No discussion of the anti-tax movement is complete without talking about the sort of godfather, if you will, of the anti-tax movement and supply-side economics, Art Laffer. Talk a little bit about what Laffer's theory was. Well, Art Laffer famously drew a curve. I've got a picture of it in the book, actually, and well, end of Laffer in those days. He was another um, character uh, himself, uh, which I describe in some in some detail. But he drew a curve in which he basically said that there is a revenue maximizing rate and that if you cut tax rates it will raise revenues uh, that became a article of faith among the, the anti-tax advocates uh, laffer uh, cleverly did not put any numbers on his curve so we never knew what the revenue maximizing rate was and that allowed uh, people to say you lower the rate and it will raise revenues which they've been saying you know, ever since uh, Laffer drew his curve, um, it made him uh, famous and actually uh, rather wealthy because he kept peddling this uh, uh, curve uh, throughout the country. And, and the notion of supply-side economics and the Laffer curve has been repeatedly cited as a basis for numerous tax cuts over the years. Is there any empirical evidence that in fact supports the notion that this continuing lowering of rates actually increases government revenue? Well, no, <laughs> this is the short answer. Uh, there's empirical evidence that, it, that, that none of the large tax cuts that we've experienced over the period of a half century that I cover in the book is, has, has increased revenues. Uh, it's been disproven over and over again, but that doesn't stop people from saying it. The Secretary of the Treasury under the Donald Trump administration most recently insisted that the tax cuts of the Trump administration would raise revenue. So the fact that it's false doesn't seem to have much impact. The other thing to be said, uh, Roger, is that the uh, supply side view was that, that if tax cuts go to the people at the top, the investors, the savers, the entrepreneurs, that will stimulate the economy and this was a repudiation at the time of Keynesian economics, which said that the best way to stimulate a stagnating economy was to provide money to low and moderate middle income people 
who would spend the money and, and stimulate the economy so that the supply side aspect of this really does emphasize cutting taxes at the top. And is that one of the false beliefs, uh, one of the three false beliefs repeatedly cited by anti-tax advocates? Well, yes. I mean, that's one, uh, that reducing taxes at the top is always the best way to grow the economy. And that's a tenant of supply-side economics. As I said, the other two, uh, one we've just talked about, is that cutting taxes will increase government revenues. And the third is that lowering taxes will necessarily starve the beast by cutting government spending. Now, you, you should notice that the last two cutting taxes will increase revenues and cutting taxes will necessarily starve the beast are in conflict. It turns out that both of these are, are false. We, we've not uh, seen tax cuts pay for themselves and we've not seen spending uh, really uh, cut as a result of the tax cuts. And so what we've done is we've moved to an economy that is grounded in borrowing and spending rather than uh, paying for the spending that we're uh, that we support and and the efforts of reagan and uh, george w bush and others to cut things like social security and medicare and health insurance uh, just have not occurred and so uh, the federal government is largely a, a military a defense department along with an insurance uh, agency and uh, those items have, have maintained uh, their spending levels. And so, you know, you've got at least two of the three, I would argue all three are, are false and, and two are in conflict. You know, we skipped from Ronald Reagan uh, all the way up to Trump because of time. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that you mentioned earlier on is that this book is full of characters. And one of the enjoyable things about the book is sort of all the anecdotes you have about the various characters, um, from George H.W. Bush having to sort of swallow his voodoo economics um, assertion uh, when he was running against Ronald Reagan, all the way up to characters like Grover Norquist and Rush Limbaugh. I, I want to ask about where we go from here, but let's just take really a brief moment to talk about Grover Norquist, because, you know, he's a, someone that maybe our listeners don't know about, but he's a surprisingly important figure in terms of the discipline he imposed on any Republican who would, wouldn't sign his tax pledge. Oh, he, he was extremely important uh, and has been uh, since 1986, really, uh, when he first founded uh, his organization, ironically called Americans for Tax Reform. But his pledge basically says that, that uh, whoever signs it will oppose all uh, tax increases. And if there is a, a loophole closer, uh, you have to lower the tax rates on others. And so, you, you know, the Republicans have agreed uh, who signed the pledge, and there are now, I think, over 1,800 uh, signatures that he's gotten, including in the states from governors and legislators as well as in Congress. You know, they agreed they won't close any loopholes without lowering tax rates, which is, you know, especially given our debt, preposterous. He's the Darth Vader, I think, <laughs> of, uh, of, of the anti-tax movement. So as we, as we get ready to wrap up, uh, you know, you, you spent a lot of time and energy thinking and writing about how we got here. 
And that sort of raises the obvious question, where do we go from here? How big a threat do you believe that this history of an anti-tax movement and, and our resulting sort of current imbalance between the revenues generated and the amount spent by the federal government, how big a threat does that pose to the long-term health of the country? Well, it's a huge threat in my view. Um, the uh, Congressional Budget Office just last week uh, said that interest on the federal debt, uh, which they've underestimated uh, for a long time, but that there now seem to have made adjustments given what's happened to interest rates. Interest on the federal debt is now uh, greater than defense spending and greater than uh, Medicare uh, spending. Um, it's now 3.2% of GDP, which means that every dollar of economic growth and then some is going to pay interest on the federal debt. And the Federal debt was never this high until right after the Second World War, and it's hit that level again. But the big difference was that after the Second World War, 95% of the debt was owed to U.S. people. Uh, now, 30 to 35 cents of every dollar goes to foreigners, many of them um, in countries like China that we don't regard as, as, as friendly uh, to us. Uh, so we're we're basically taking all of our economic growth and using it to pay interest on the federal debt, uh, which can't go on. And, and the, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that over time, as deficits accumulate and debt continues to grow, that the uh, interest payments will be an unthinkable 6.2% of uh, the GDP, uh, which is uh, clearly unsustainable. Now, how do we go somewhere from here? I, <laughs> I often cite uh, Herb Stein's uh, law. Herb Stein was uh, Richard Nixon's chief economic advisor, and when the deficits were uh, in the forefront of American uh, policy in, in the 1980s, uh, Stein said that if uh, something cannot go on, uh, it will stop. And that's, uh, that's Stein's law. And the question is, how will it stop? And I have to say, I don't know. I, I think this movement has been so strong and so successful. You know, the women's movement has had setbacks uh, with abortion and, and other issues. And the, the civil rights movement has had setbacks in voting and other issues. The anti-tax movement has not had setbacks. And in fact, in 2025, We've got another three and a half trillion dollars in Donald Trump's tax cuts that are going to expire. And if I were a betting person, and as I always tell my students, I am, I would uh, I would bet that they're going to be extended. And whether they'll be paid for or not seems to me to be a very uh, unlikely thing. So I think we're going to dig ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole, at least in the near future. I was hoping for a happier <laughs> ending, but I, unfortunately, I believe what you're saying is quite realistic. We've been speaking with so Professor. Was I. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking with Professor Michael Gratz on his new book, *The Power to Destroy: How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America*. You know, it's a surprisingly readable and interesting book, filled with interesting stories. Um, but it certainly does portray a picture of a movement that has taken us into a mountain of debt. Thanks for spending time with us, Professor Gratz. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Allison. A pleasure to be here.
Well, each year on Mountain Money, we look forward to being Monday morning quarterbacks and putting on our jerseys and analyzing the show that Madison Avenue puts on for the game. This year, we're once again joined by veteran ad man Tom Darbyshire to talk about the good, the bad, and the incompletions from last night's game. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Great to be here. So, Tom, before we get into the ads themselves, I, I think we both thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about what goes into the planning and execution of one of these ads. I mean, you know, we're all sitting on the couch maybe deciding whether to get up and go to the bathroom or watch the ad, but some people have spent a lot of time and energy getting ready. Can you ex- describe how that process works? Yeah, typically speaking, it will start months, um, five, six, seven months before the game. Uh, you'll make an agreement with your client that they, you know, they want to be on the Super Bowl and they want to win the Super Bowl. And you'll start coming up with a strategy and then you'll start coming up with ideas to try to express that strategy in a way that people are going to find, you know, uh, a great laugh fest on the bowl or a heart tugging, uh, you know, heart strings kind of spot. And then you will assign multiple teams to work on the idea. And by the By the time you take your stuff to the client, you've probably looked at 500, 600 ideas, which have been at least turned into a script and maybe a um, a key visual or two. And then you storyboard 10 to 12 ideas, take those to the clients. Um, And then you maybe put two or three, four into testing. And then you go out and produce, and depending on your client, you're either producing one and putting all your eggs in that basket, or you're producing four or five and then picking the best one to put on the bowl. You're gonna spend seven, what is it, seven and a half million now for 30 seconds. You're probably gonna spend at least a million dollars just on the shooting of the spot, depending on how many special effects you have. And these days you're gonna spend a million, two, three, four, five. I, I have no idea how much money is going to celebrities now because these spots are so chock full of celebrities. And then you're gonna buy a piece of familiar music that everybody knows that could be another million or so. Uh, so it all totals up. Um, this is radio, but I think for me, those numbers are just jaw dropping. You know, it, it's amazing how much time and energy gets spent on that. And again, you know, there's there's certain things that these brands want to achieve, and they're looking to achieve awareness, consideration, and affinity, you had said. You know, mm-hmm. um, but I, I would think that we definitely maybe had some flops last night that didn't achieve any of those. Um, <laughs> with regards to what we're seeing this year, can you start talking a bit about the trends that you saw? Yeah, well, overall, I thought the spots were a little better this year than last year. I actually thought last year was almost a low point. Um, One of the interesting trends is the spots are being released much earlier. It used to be that you would just release them on the bowl um, and hope to have a big surprise. Uh, Then they started teasing them where you would put out teasers for your spot for a few weeks in advance and get them out to the press so they could be ready to talk about it. But now they're putting them out in some cases several weeks in advance and then they start doing what you would call marketing the marketing with full social media campaigns and stunts to get you excited about the spots. And and another interesting phenomenon is that they will put out the two minute or one minute version of the spot and hope, hope that you see it in advance of the bowl. And then when you see it on the bowl, you say, oh, hey guys, I love this spot and your brain is filling in all the stuff you saw in the two minute version, even though you're only now watching the 30 second version. Um, we would often do that even if we weren't on the Super Bowl, we would, we would try to get a client to run the longer version of the spot for a few weeks so that people got the full story and then the, when they see the shorter version later, their brain is filling in the missing pieces. 
It's interesting, you know, as, as and we're, and we're going to get to this, but one of the things, I, as I looked at the internet this morning, there were many, many um, rankings of which were the mm -hmm. best and which were the worst that were surprisingly in disagreement with each other. Oh, there yeah, was an absolutely. incredible lack of consistency. We're going to get to what your favorites are, because I think you're the one who counts in a minute, but there was another sort of trend I think that you, that, that, that you wanted to highlight this year, which is about we're seeing, even though it's a football game, we're seeing more spots oriented to women. Yeah, I, this is absolutely the case. Uh, I think part of that was the, you know, the Taylor Swift effect. They knew that more women would be watching. But we've seen this in previous years. The Dove Beauty products was there. Elf Beauty was there with a dreadful spot. Um, <laughs> Sarah, Sarah V uh, with Michael Sarah um, was also very female targeted. Um, so I'd say that that was definitely a trend. I think we're also in terms of the type of spots we're seeing, lots of what I would call a thrill ride set up a premise and then you race through these increasingly over-the-top vignettes, lots of special effects, um, Kawasaki, Skechers, or a, a literal chase scene like the Doritos spot. Um, and I think those are getting a little carried away. They're stuffing so much stuff in you can hardly follow what's going on. There was one in particular uh, with Beyonce yes. trying to break the internet mm. and I totally missed the fact that the last vignette was her announcing the drop of a new album. Um, you could have made a whole spot just about that and it would have broken the internet, but instead it was so hidden among all these vignettes that I think a lot of people missed it. Um, I think we saw this year, interestingly, less overt emphasis on diversity, which I think has become a little bit of a you know, political third rail. Uh, good news is we saw more comedy and less hard sell, fewer just sort of old fashioned advertising spots with laundry lists and fewer tangible benefits. Um, maybe a few less of the heart tuggers, though I was surprised to find some of those were turned out to be the best spots. Celebrity has now become not the exception, but the rule, not just a single celebrity in your spot, but just spots that are jam packed with celebrities. And interestingly, I haven't seen this before. Uh, celebrities who showed up in two different spots for two different brands. Tom Brady was both in Duncan and an MGM sports betting. Dan Marino was in an M an Eminem spot and a Michelob spot. Uh, Jelly Roll was in Bud Light and Uber Eats. Uh, Jeff Goldblum was in two different spots. They were for apartments.com and homes.com, which are the same company, but two totally different campaigns. Um, celebrity, of course, comes with some risk. You know, you can go out and shoot a spot with a celebrity, build a whole campaign with a celebrity who then goes out and commits a crime or mouths off about politics or Jason from Subway, all that kind of thing. This year was an interesting one where um, Carl Weathers died after they shot the spot and before they could put it on the air. That was for um, FanDuel. So they had to completely recut their spot. And I don't know if you noticed, but at the very end of the spot, they actually put up a little title card that says, you know, in loving memory uh, with Carl Weathers picture, which was a head scratcher if you didn't know what was going on. But that was, you know, there's always a risk there. Um, we also saw pop songs as usual. Um, to fit the concept. I thought there was a little more uh, nod towards nostalgia this year. There were mm -hmm. songs by crooners like Perry Como and Tom Jones and Neil Diamond, songs from Queen and Flashdance. Um, not just playing to the broadest possible audience, but I think actually there's a, uh, the, the millennials actually listen to a lot of older music. Um, religion, wasn't that a surprise? We got two spots for Jesus by the Servant Foundation. Um, you know, you can dive down a whole rabbit hole there. Um, one for a Catholic prayer app with Mark Wahlberg, one that was an anti-hate 
spot by a group that combats anti-Semitism and the Church for Scientology showed up again. And then, of course, uh, the, the third rail that nobody touches on the Super Bowl, which is we, we usually don't get any politics spots, but RFK Jr. Uh, dusted off an old Kennedy jingle and made it about himself rather than the Kennedy for whom it was written, uh, which was, that was a head-scratcher. And it's been pretty controversial. I don't know if you've seen the reaction of members of the Kennedy family today. Many of them yeah. were angry about it. And, of course, I, go ahead. He, he opened himself up to that, didn't he? And, and, of course, Kennedy, his response is, oh, my, that was done by the PAC and by law. I couldn't communicate with them about what was in it. He said uh, that, notwithstanding the fact that he reposted the ad on his Twitter account. <laughs> so he's, he's really trying to have it both ways. It, you know, that was a great old ad, but I, I, I like you, Tom, I, I, I found it very disconcerting to see RFK Jr.'s face on JFK's, you know, or the, or the spot where this old JFK ad ran. Yeah, that one, and, and, and like we didn't know he's a Kennedy. What did it accomplish beyond that? Um, other than to sort of invite derision, you know, I, you, you want to be Lloyd Benson and say, you know, I knew JFK and you are no JFK. I, I, um, do, I do agree, but, but we had a nice little conversation out in the green room before the show, and it brought awareness. I think that's the piece that, you know, that you have mm -hmm. one, one group of people who have strong feelings about how the use of the, you know, original ad and everything is being used, but if not anything, it is getting people talking, and isn't that the whole point of the ad? Oh, you, you make a good point. My my daughter weighed in and said she hoped that that was his whole budget and now it's gone. Yeah, they, they, they spent, what, $7 million on it. <laughs> um, Tom, there were a couple of ads that I, I would like you to contrast. Sure. Um, because some of them, you know, use celebrities uh, and promote an ad that I, I understand what it's about. And some of them use celebrities and promote an ad that is very effective. And, and the contrast I would set up is the State Farm ad with, with Schwarzenegger versus mm -hmm. the weird outer space ad that was shot by Martin Scorsese. And as I'm yeah. saying this, I can't remember what it was for. <laughs> it was That one, uh, I had to watch it a second time to figure out what it was for. Um, I think they totally buried it. The, the story there is, you know, there are aliens and no one is seeing them because everyone's glued to their phones. So the aliens have to, and this is a part that they didn't make clear, have to create a website because until you have a website, whatever you're doing is not real. Um, well, you know, a website, website makes it real was kind of the strategy there. Um, but it was lost in all of that over-the-top production. Whereas the Schwarzenegger spot was, it was kind of a simple mnemonic device. They took a tagline, which everybody knows, it didn't tell you anything new. But on the Super Bowl, that's not the place to be, you know, putting a hard sell on people. And so just repeating over and over, like a good neighbor, neighbor. <laughs> I, and it was it was funny. Um, and it just, you know, often with a Super Bowl spot, you're not trying to actually sell a product. You're trying to create some affinity. You're just trying to make people say, I like State Farm. They made me laugh. And, of course, they finish it with the Danny DeVito sort of tribute to the old Twins yep. movie, which, again, very yep. effective, very quick. Yep, and, and having that little twist at the end, um, particularly in the days when, the, when there was really only one ranking of Super Bowl ads, which was the USA Today ad meter, where you physically were twisting a spring-loaded dial to show how much you liked the commercial, having that little extra twist at the end made you twist the knob a little further and got you the higher score. I want to talk a little bit about like the Anheuser-Busch ads and beer ads because I, they used to be the thing for the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, they're not um, as prominent and, and 
but they still are present. You know, were they effective? Um, you know, we had uh, Bud Light and the Genie Wishes, I think, was kind of the one that seemed to stick out Bug. to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could see the creative team struggling to say, what new can we possibly say about beer? Well, no, what about beer? Uh, it comes in a bottle. What else comes in bottles? Genies come in bottles. I mean, it was, uh, you know, maybe you could have made a good spot out of the Bud Light Genie, but it was just uh, kind of a, a dumb thrill ride. And I was, uh, you know, we've seen so much, so much better beer advertising in past years. A lot of it, which was really due to Augie Bush the Fourth, who used to give out small amounts of money, only half a million dollars, to about 20 agencies at a time, and put them into a big shootout. And everybody would bring him the spots, so he'd have 20, 25 spots to look at. And then they could just pick the one or two that you know surprised everyone and came out great and put them on the bowl. Now you tend to have clients who say, I'm only going to do one spot, so we're going to put you know, as many celebrities and as much action into it as possible, and you end up creating a mess. You know, it's interesting because Bud Light has had such a rough year, right? You would, have th you would think that they would view this as, as an opportunity to try to turn the page with something really interesting and really different mm -hmm. and really effective, and I, I think they whiffed. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, um, I want to talk about what I, you know, my favorite ad, and I want to get yours, but my favorite mm -hmm. ad was the Dunkin' Donuts ad. Can you describe what that one was about? Tell me more about that. Interesting. Oh, he has thoughts. <laughs> um, I thought that um, the idea of Affleck, whose career may not be where it should be, Affleck appears with Matt Damon and his brother Casey, and they're, they're, looks like they're trying to crash a recording session by J-Lo, and she looks at him rather skeptically. Uh, and it's cute. And their T-shirts say Dunn Kings. Um, mm -hmm. So what, what, what did it do to me? Um, you know, Affleck has been a Dunkin' Donuts advertiser before. He's very closely associated with Boston, which is where Dunkin' Donuts comes from. And I thought that having, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine what it cost to mm -hmm. have Affleck and Damon and the other Affleck and J-Lo. But again, in terms of being cute and attractive, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you're not alone. It uh, On the ad meter, it is number two. Um, just from a, a creative point of view, I kind of find, found it a big mess. It was a fun mess, um, but it you know was it a parody? Was it a jingle? Was it a narrative story? And then it's also playing off of essentially a you know a bit of wordplay, the Dung Kings. Yes. Um, I just found it like it had a whole bunch of crazy stuff all thrown in there, all stirred together. Great fun to watch. I admit that, and everybody goes home remembering that it was from Duncan. Right. But I thought that his spot last year with him, you know, working at the uh, the takeout window, oh, yes. was just so much more fun and and a better spot. Uh, for me, uh, one of the one of the companies that got my attention to actually go out and try it is Poppy. It's a new kind of soda, and they, you know, soda's no longer a dirty word. I thought, you know, they, they put enough into that to make me go out and try that product, um, and I had no idea it existed. I, you know, well, that's one of the things that the Super Bowl is good for, is, um, you know, we talked about affinity, but the other thing is, is awareness, just saying there's something new, you've never heard of it, this is a good big platform for us to tell the world that it exists. And I think you can take virtually every movie trailer and put it into that category. Mm -hmm. Hey, we want you to know there's this new movie coming out, this new app, this new video game. Um, so, yes, I found that, that if you go back and actually listen to that script, which was a, we would call that a manifesto, a long, a long uh, 
essay, essentially, but done from a, you know, a charming young female voice. It sort of said, we are not a soda, but we have everything that you love about soda, the fizz and the soda, but we are not a soda, but we are the future of soda. And you'll, it's like, I didn't, it, it, it kind of kept circling back and disagreeing with itself. But I don't think you are alone. I've, you know, I got two or three other messages from particularly my uh, daughters saying, I'm going to go out and try that product. But I, as someone who has written a lot of manifestos and who appreciates when someone delivers a really elegant, beautiful, surprising argument, I found it kind of, kind of poorly written. You know, you pointed out that certain celebrities appeared in multiple places. What I found fascinating was that Flashdance appeared in more than one ad. I mean, what is this, a 25-year-old movie that suddenly yeah. has become so current that they want to feature it in two ad spots? Yes, that that was uh, one of my notes as well. What are the chances of that? And, um, and, and typically, when you're negotiating, you should be asking, uh, you know, the music licensor, say, hey, we want to use this on a Super Bowl spot. We want to know that no one else is using it. So somebody, two, at least two agencies, dropped the ball on that question. So, Tom, I told you what my favorite ad was, and I think we got a sense of what Allison's favorite ad might have been. What was yours? Um, I, I do think the State Farm was was very hardworking and simple, and you couldn't help but like it. Um, I actually, from, from a copywriter's point of view, knowing the challenge that you're up against, I thought the Mountain Dew Blast spot with Aubrey Plaza was really pretty smart um where she says i can have a blast anywhere i'm having a blast here i'm having a blast there but she's in situations where she's having about as far from a blast as you can have which is where the comedy of it comes from super mnemonic very on brand for teens um i was confused by that last scenario where she's flying on a dragon mm -hmm. because that to me is like well that sounds like fun that's not uh you know a torture test um, but otherwise, I thought that was a smart spot and one that could only have been written for a product called Mountain Dew Blast. Mm -hmm. I also like the Talking Like Walkin' with Christopher yes. Walken. Great fun. I will say, and, and it gets you to this idea, there's only one Christopher Walken. There's only one ultimate driving machine. The rest are just imitations. It's, it's an old strategy, but it was smart here. I will say that it's, it's a concept you could possibly have used for any other product. There's mm -hmm. only one fill in the blank. There's only one Christopher Walken. So I didn't think it was as uh, con directly connected. I will say the Pfizer spot celebrating science um, with the don't stop me now from Queen. In terms of degree of difficulty, that's a really hard spot to do and put on the bowl. Um, and I think it had a lot of fun moments in it with all of the portraits and busts and paintings of scientists. If you go back and look at it, there's a lot of very well-synced uh, moments to lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a just there's a lot of intelligence in that spot, and I think they nailed a very hard kind of spot to do. And I hate to admit it, but the Pluto TV mm -hmm. raising couch potatoes mm -hmm, yeah. spot, that was such a mashup of different genres. It was a parody of an anthemic celebrating Heartland Farmers spot. Um, it tugged at the heartstrings at the same time it had a completely wacky literal visualization of a phrase, couch potatoes as people, uh, being literal potatoes. It was also a demo of a lot of product offerings. It was comedy, it had vignettes. It's kind of hard to put in a category, but it was 
it was fun. And I'm certainly remembering that Pluto has lots and lots of stuff to watch. How did the automakers do with the ads that they had on during the Super Bowl? Um, there, I think there were fewer of them overall. Last year, it was an electric car just about in every pod. Um, I loved the Kia spot. Um, that also would make my wish I had done it list, mm-hmm. um, which is the, the little girl who's, you know, someone didn't get to come see her in her skating competition. You're thinking maybe it's her mom, um, but then you see them doing the drive in the car and dad sets up the lights and the music and she goes out on the pond and they wheel grandpa in his wheelchair up to the window and he watches her skate and he draws a 10 in the fog on the window. It's beautiful, Made, it really choked me up. I thought that was a lovely spot, didn't need a single line of copy. Um, the uh, So those are the car spots that stuck with me. There were a couple of others that I thought, the, the one for pickup trucks with the uh, scaring your passengers, I thought was, I'm kind of surprised they got away with that. Um, showing people driving in a way that terrifies their passengers does not seem like something the auto industry should probably be doing. You, you mentioned the Kia ad, and, and that one definitely tugged heartstrings. The one for me that tugged my heartstring was the Google, you know, one face yeah. in picture. But mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about Google because what they've been showing year after year is a new feature that they've got with regards to their camera. The feature may not apply to everyone, you know, but yet that's how they're, you know, but they're selling that to everyone. Well, you're, you put your finger on it, which is they're not selling what are their, uh, how how many customers are there out there for that feature? Probably you could almost count, count them on your hands and toes. Someone who's got enough visual ability, but not so little, they can't use a phone at all. I mean, it, it's a beautiful thing that they put their scientists and engineers to work on something with such limited need. But that's what makes it a beautiful spot. Um, it's not there to sell a serve, not there to sell a product feature, it's there to sell a affinity for Google products and the good that Google brings to the world. So it's a, it's a corporate reputation spot that is talk, using a feature to demonstrate their commitment to being good people. You know, the one celebrity that I kind of thought we might see, because she's done a number of ads for Coca-Cola in the past, was Taylor Swift. And you have to believe that Coke really, really tried to get her, but she just wasn't willing to do it. I'm sure there were a, a, a lot of uh, people who reached out to her. Um, probably every advertiser in America, every client in America probably turned to their agency and said, do you think you could get us Taylor Swift? <laughs> um, the one that surprised me was the commercial for Cetaphil yes. with the Game Time Glow, which I don't think was a very good spot. I really had a hard time figuring out what role Cetaphil was playing. There is an influencer out there claiming that that she did a post that they stole and turned into a commercial. Hmm. I think, and you know, from all my time in the business, I think that Taylor could probably sue them because they are they are clearly trading on her image. The jersey was had a thirteen on it, which is associated with her. Um, they had the friendship bracelets, clearly associated with her. They had the dad and daughter thing, which how many articles have been written about how dads and daughters are bonding over the Super Bowl this year as they never have because of Taylor Swift and Kelsey. Um, so there's, it's clear to me that that spot wanted people, that if you showed it to a hundred people on the street, they'd say, oh yeah, that's about Taylor Swift. Mm. And when you do that, you break the law uh, in commercial speech. That's just my 
worry for them. Okay, as we're getting near the end, let's talk about the ones we didn't like. I, I, I for one, didn't like the Paramount Mountain Plus ad uh, any more this year than last year. What were your least favorite ads, Tom? Um, gosh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it because it is an agency I used to work for, <laughs> but the, the M&M's spot where they turned peanut butter into diamonds to create the ring of comfort. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like, what? Now, the idea of candy as comfort food is a really intriguing thing. Snickers has made its fortune out of convincing you that Snickers satisfies you when you're hungry, that it's kind of a, a you know, it's actually like a real food as opposed to just junk. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, that this candy can stand for comfort, that's kind of interesting. But I thought the spot was um, just didn't hit the mark. The, the Coors Light Chill Train, just a yeah. you know a big thrill ride. Um, the people driving recklessly in the Toyota Tacoma. The CrowdStrike metaphor spot with the internet as the Wild West. Um, what a mess. Um, and you know I, I think I weighed in last year. The T-Mobile, what a feeling spot. This one was more fun. Jason Momoa was actually <laughs> kind of fun to watch, and there was a great cameo surprise cameo from general jennifer beals at the end which mm -hmm. i've missed the first time <laughs> so it was it the second time wow yeah <laughs> what a feeling um <laughs> what a feeling yeah so so that one a lot of people like it because they just love to see you know celebrities being goofy but that to me is the uh, you know there's the old saying if you don't have anything to say sing it or if you have too much to say <laughs> sing it and that was just a big singing laundry list of product features um the T-Mobile celebrity auditions with Bradley Cooper and oh, his mom yeah, and Laura no. Dern. That was a mess and a very expensive mess. Um, I already told you how I feel about Poppy. Oh, the bottom of my, the very bottom would be the Nerds spot, which was the other What a Feeling spot from Flashdance with the big gummy dancing. Um, and then the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, which was kind of a big slapstick spot with people either shouting yes or no yeah. in reaction to the voiceover. It was, an, it was pretty annoying. We've been talking to Tom Darbyshire about a uh, uh, retired ad man who brings a lot of experience um, to understanding how Super Bowl ads get made and t talking to us about what we saw last night. Tom, thanks for spending time with us, and uh, we'll be back next year, I hope. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.